another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of christiangospelchurch.org. And together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, today we have one of the most interesting and unusual topics. It's interesting, especially to historians, but I'm going to be really honest, it may not be interesting to cult members because we were, many of us, were literally indoctrinated to mentally block this period of time from our minds. And there's this huge gap in William Branham's history that historians just don't know what to do with because this period of time doesn't really fit the later versions of his periods, you know, his history and periods of time. And um, what we're talking about today is one of the earliest known evidences of William Branham's using different versions of his stage personas. Um, not much is known about this because William Branham himself and his, you know, historians working with him have literally erased most of it from history. But we have testimonies from people about this time period that has not been made public yet. And the most damning testimony comes from William Branham himself. So I'm pretty excited to get into this one. It's going to be quite a wild ride. Yeah, me, me too, John. I know in this episode, we're just going to be talking about these supposed quiet years or secret years of William Branham's life. And when he, you know, got in his official story, he got married and he wasn't really doing anything until he rose into national fame. But like you said, um, what is official there doesn't really match what is uh, the true history. Because, um, you know, in a William Branham's official biographies, nothing is supposed to have really happened at all in these years. He says that after after the Ohio River flood killed his family, um, he says that God abandoned him, that the gifts or the anointing that was on him was taken away, and he just went through these years like a spiritual drought. Um, and in most of the versions of his story, he says that lasted for five years. In some of them, he said it was seven, but mostly he said five. Uh, and... and I'm sure uh, they were definitely sad years for him. His family had died. He'd lost his wife. But like so much of his early life and what's in his official biographies, it actually does differ quite substantially from the truth. William Branham actually was, like you said, actively holding revivals and doing tours during this period. And right. there were reports of healings and miracles coming out in this period. And um, the fact that he covers all this up and changes it, you know, again, it leaves us with the question, why? And and I hope um, maybe as we go through this, Roy Davis ends up in jail in this period of time. Right. And that, that, I think, feeds into part of why he starts changing his backstory um, through this period and covers this up. Because this is when the stuff with Roy Davis finally hits the fan. Um, and Roy Davis ends up in jail, and his backstory is um, <laughs> no longer spotless and pretty anymore, so he's got to change it. Yeah. I don't think we'll ever answer the why, but I think in this episode we're going to hit pretty hard on the hows. Yeah. Um, there's so much that we do know, and uh, like I said, some of the testimony comes from William Branham himself. Um, if 
people, if historians are looking at this episode and they're remembering the life stories, William Branham claims that he was commissioned to heal the sick by an alleged angel. The angel met him in either a room or in a cave or, you know, with a wood stove or a dirt floor or windows or cave wall. You know, depending on which version of the life story you hear, there's this conflicting location where he meets this angel and the angel apparently was using his Moses stage persona and he says as Moses was given two signs so will you be given two signs and if you can just get the people to believe in you uh, notice it wasn't in Christ but if you believe in you people will be healed and that was the version that literally got written down in history the version of his stage persona but I was really surprised the first time somebody sent me uh, photographs of the copy of the I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision tract because not only is this a completely different William Branham with a completely different vocabulary this is this is just not the man that I knew uh, when you know when I was in the uh, message cult following i understood William Bram to be this Kentucky hillbilly with, you know, he, how did he say it? Haints and totes and Terry's and, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, all of this vocabulary that, yeah. you know, literally wasn't him. And then I read this tract from him written by him. Yeah. And this was a very educated writing. This was right. not the same man. And, and it, and you know, it almost certainly it had to come from him because this, it was wrote before Gordon Lindsay was around before right. Jack Moore was around uh, even before Kidston was around, this is a very early track. This is right, you know, even before he was working with any of those people that that track was wrote. So um, all the people who wrote material for him at points at later in life couldn't have wrote that for him. Yeah. yeah. So I think the best way to start this episode out, Charles, I'm going to read just a couple of segments from this book and show some of the contrast between the later versions of his stage persona, because... William Branham himself is actually very damning in this tract, if you compare it to the other versions of his stage persona. The tract's title was, I Was Not Disobedient to the Heavenly Vision, and you called it The Quiet Years. Um, Back when I did my docu-series, I called it, uh, what I said, The Missing Years, I think. But I've actually come to call these years The Disobedient Years. (laughs) Because there's one thing that he says in this document, if you read it and understand what he's saying, you know, the title is, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Well, he totally abandons the stage persona and literally becomes disobedient to the vision that he's proclaiming in this document. Yeah, within a year of having it. Within a year of having it. So let me read you part of the uh, preface to this. Um, He says, for three years, I performed... He performed mighty miracles. Then one day he called me to take the gift, and the gift is capitalized, to evangelize for him. Many of my dear friends begged me not to leave them, and I stayed. Because of this, the gift was taken from me for more than five years. Though I cried and prayed earnestly for people, it did not seem to work. Then one year ago, I was standing in my yard The spirit came to me again, and I was told that God had forgiven me and that a double portion of the power to heal would be given me. In this book are some of the things that he did on my first trip for him. Now, this version of the stage persona, 
uh, William Branham explains, if you continue reading the document, how his gift of healing, his alleged gift of healing came. And this gift of healing came in this tract, in this version of a stage persona, by a vision and not by an angel. And at the point in time at which this tract was written and the events that are described of, you know, healing miracles in this book, Israel had not yet became a nation. The nation of Israel was formed on May 14th, 1948. And, um, you know, this tract is advertising a completely different stage persona. You remember the later versions of his stage persona. It was closely tied to the formation of Israel. And right. he said, the very day that the angel came to me was the exact same day that Israel became a nation. Right, right. And um, if you do the math on this, so it appears based on the way I'm reading this tract, he says that one year ago he was given this gift. So then the next paragraph, he says in 1948, uh, I'm sorry, 1945. So it appears that this track was first published 1946. He says one year ago I was given this gift after five years of having no gift. So 1945 minus five is 1940. Then he says that for three years, I performed mighty miracles. So if you take 1940 minus three, you get 1937. Right. You know, it, it's amazing when you when you look at that and you unpack it, how it conflicts so much with the official story, right? And, you know, in, in my sect of the message that I come from, John, we had a really strong awareness of these years because a lot of the, there was a lot of people in our church who were with William Branham through these years. And uh, so, you know, we talk about cognitive dissonance. Um, uh, this is one area that we, we had it very strongly because we knew the some of the true story of what happened in these quiet years, yet we still believed the official story alongside it. And let me let me read just something real quick, John, to put alongside what you've said. Um, this is from a man sent from God, you know, his official biography, this first edition. Um, so, like you said, he had he said he had three years of miracles, then he had a five year drought, and then he comes up to 1945 and his ministry takes off. Well, here in this book, he tells he tells um, the flood. He said, "Little did either I or my friends realize that the Ohio River flood would overtake the banks, and my family would be caught in the tragedy of the awful flood." It was at this time that the anointing of God, which had come upon me, left me, and it never really returned until five years later. Right. So so you see how there's a there's a big difference, right, between that disobedient yes. vision. There's a there's a difference. And, you, and the heavenly vision even said more than five years. Um, but it, that five year period wouldn't start until 1940. So there's there's this just unusual difference in the timeline of his stories. And here here's the problem is we know that he was doing stuff, whether it was in that three-year period or whether it was in the five-year period. Yeah. He was holding revivals in multiple different places through there with reports of miracles and things happening. Yeah. Um, and if you consider the Mishawaka trip where, um, you know, Pentecostal historians place William Branham at that trip with a sign advertising his healing ministries long before the flood, we know that William Branham was touring as a healing evangelist, faith healer, they called them, before the flood. And then um, in our sect of the message, the main sect, we matched actually, we were closer to that uh, 
book that you just read because we were taught that William Branham uh, experienced the trauma of his wife dying, the flood. Uh, we believe that you know he was very suicidal, um, suffered severe depression, basically yeah. isolated himself for a period of time. I think it was three years, you know, matching that book. So that would place it, uh, like you said, 1940. And then we did not believe that he had his gift of healing until May the 6th, 1946, which is interesting because I'm going to read you another quote. 1954, he says, the very day that Israel was declared a nation. Again, I'm going to pause. Israel was formed May the 14th, 1948. 1948 is key. He said the very day that Israel was declared a nation again for the first time for 2,500 years, that same night that the angel of the Lord sent me out to pray for the sick. That very same time, May the 6th, 1946, not 1948, the Lord Jesus did that. He said this in 1954. And remember, he's two years off. So he's like everything else in his timeline, he progresses the timeline into the future by a few years. 1959, William Branham says this, Israel became a nation in 1947, not 1948 again, on the same night that the angel of the Lord visited me. And, you know, you take all of these dates. We know that in the mid-1930s, he's holding his own healing revivals, you know, while he's working with Davis. Prior to this, what did we say, 1928, I think is the earliest confirmed. He was touring with Davis, who was performing healings. And he's literally rewriting his own stage persona and his own history each time, each version that he introduces himself. Yeah, you're you're definitely right. I, I see just in what we've talked about, there's there's at least two reinventions of himself here. Yeah. Um, there's there's the there's the reinvention that happens in in 1945. Uh, I mean, we see that in that I was not disobedient uh, tract that they released that he released at that time, and at that point he's he's rewriting what happened from the death of his wife up till 1945 substantially and and then as time goes on he does this another kind of a rewrite of his history and it it goes to like talking about trying to connect that angelic visitation that happened the first time he talked about in 46 trying to connect that with the start of Israel uh, as a nation and that that really coincides more with the latter rain movement and um, I know we're going to do a full episode on William Branham and the Latter Rain Movement at some point, but within the Latter Rain Movement, um, they had been heavily influenced by British Israelism, and they viewed um, developments among the Jewish people and in the land of Israel as um, events that were intimately connected to things happening within the church as well, because they, you know, they they. They married both of these things together in their ideology. And so William Branham connecting himself to the events in Israel was uh, to fit and make himself a significant prophet within the uh, ideology of the Latter Rain movement. And so it's, a, it's as that Latter Rain movement's unfolding, again, that he's coming back and he's trying to reconnect himself specifically to events in Israel to make him pr important within the framework of that movement. Right. Um, 
there there's so much stuff that goes on here he just he reinvents himself as time goes on and it's like you said it, it's he has different stage personas for different people and this connecting to israel has to do with his latter rain stage persona to to the people there right whereas the the it, everything is just for a different crowd honestly that that's yeah. really what it amounts to and he so kind of you know drilling back to he wasn't supposed to be doing anything really in any of these versions. This period of time is a is a drought in his ministry. No miracles, no healings. Um, but that's really not, really just not the truth of what happened, John. We know we know he was all over the place. Um, here is here's one uh, newspaper article. This is from the spring of 1940. And this spring of 1940 says William Branham is going to hold revival meetings in uh, three different uh, three different locations, each for two weeks. Uh, one of which is is Milltown. So we we know, for example, from from newspaper articles like this, that he was going around having meetings, doing revivals, and holding healings in those places. And as as I I kind of read John uh, his a little excerpt from his official biography, but these are the kind of pap- these are the kind of publications that that my sect of the message put out on right. the life of William Branham. And in these versions, we have these years that he wasn't doing nothing filled in because we know what he was doing because the people he's doing it with was at our church. <laughs> and uh, and he, he was he was doing stuff, and there was miracles, and there was healings. And even on tape, William Branham references these things from point to point in his ministry on tape. But it is it is left out of all of these official biographies because I don't know why. For whatever dramatic effect, for to cover <laughs> something up, he has to leave out. Nothing happened in these years. It was a, it was a drought. What's really odd too, <clears throat> if you read through the text of this, I was not disobedient document. Um, he makes a very clear separation from his being a minister and a, an evangelist in this document. Um. We were taught in the main sect, you know, that it wasn't until the angel met him in 1946 and commissioned him that he transitioned from a minister to an evangelist. But let me read you another quote in this uh, document. He is talking about the vision that he saw that gave him this alleged healing power. And he says, looking to my left, I saw a small heap of smooth baked bread. There were white fowls standing near it, but they would not eat much of it. Then the Lord said to me, do you know them? I I said, no. Then he said, this is your tabernacle, and they won't eat the bread of life anymore. I'm sending you this way. Now, keep in mind, in the same document, he mentions that he is explaining this vision to these very people that he's saying, all of you are condemned to hell. You're not listening. You're not eating my bread. And then he continues and says, I was then brought to a plain where a platform was erected. Seemingly, it was under a large tent or auditorium. There were curtains drawn in the back of the platform, and the Lord said me to me to pull back the curtains. And when I did, I saw a great mountain of the bread of life. He said, feed these. And turning around, I saw white-robed people coming from everywhere, making up a large audience. So he's mentioning... You know, you can take the white robe people and you can say it's the Klan or you can say it's just biblical white robe people. But he's literally talking about 
his evangelism and this vision is telling him to evangelize and again the date on this he's saying is 1945 and not 1948 mm-hmm. yeah it, it's something else i i so my leading opinion, right? And like you said, we'll probably never know why, but my leading opinion on why he at least initially started to rewrite stuff at this point was um, was because Roy Davis went to jail in this period. Um, so in, in 19... So, you know, after Roy Davis's church had burned down and Roy Davis, um, the city refused to let him rebuild... And by 1935, William Branham has got the tabernacle started up, and Roy Davis's congregation comes over to visit him, or to to attend the Branham Tabernacle. But Davis remained in the region, and he remained connected to William Branham. We know that um, right. through through various other things, because we know, for example, the next year William Branham was representing Davis at Mishawaka. Right? Um, Davis was still coming around holding uh, revival meetings, um, and. William Branham and Roy Davis continued to remain connected until finally the law starts to catch up with Roy Davis. And um, Roy Davis had uh, uh, was did all kinds of touring. I just got a couple quick articles of some of the some of the some of the revivals Davis was doing during this year during these years. But he had revivals down in Shreveport, the Bossier City area. So Davis is going around, and he's still having revivals in Ohio in Indiana, in Kentucky, and other southern states. Um, And finally, the law catches up with him, and he gets arrested in Kentucky, and he gets extradited to Arkansas, where Roy Davis goes to jail. Yeah, and if you read that article, I think it says that he was hiding out in Jeffersonville, which would have been, you know, with William Branham. Yes, Uh, and this is what happened right in this time period, um... Part, happened during William Brown's five-year drought. <laughs> yeah. Roy Davis ends up arrested and goes to jail, uh, and he's going to serve. He serves a term in in prison before he gets out. And so it's it's this time that that Roy Davis is in prison, right? Um, he's in jail, and William Branham uh, is kind of left, uh, you might say, without a leader for a little while, in a sense, right? Yeah. And the thing is, we know that. William Branham, he talked about his separation from Roy Davis. He told that he separated from Roy Davis. One time he said it was because Roy Davis had uh, woman preachers and he didn't believe in woman preachers. Um, but we know he married one of Roy Davis's woman preachers. <laughs> yeah. And and then another reason he said he separated from Davis was because Davis wouldn't do Jesus' name baptism. But again, we know that's not true because the newspaper articles record Davis doing Jesus' name baptism and he baptized William Branham Jesus' name. So... We know that's really not a true reason that he separated from Davis. But, you know, it, it it's more that he started to distance himself from Davis at this point in time, at least through his stories, I think, because Davis ended up in jail, and it don't look good for him to go around as an evangelist and his bishop or his pope is in jail. Yeah. I um, It'll probably be published before this episode goes live, but I've been piecing together the Davis separation because, in my opinion, during this period of time— uh, remember, William Branham was a bishop in this new sect, in this Pentecostal Baptist Church of God sect. He was under Roy Davis. He was the second in command in this sect. Davis gets sent to prison, and while he's in prison, I, you can actually look on my website and see the prison log. They write next to his name, Sex Pervert. Davis has 
completely destroyed the name of the Pentecostal Baptist Church in Jeffersonville mm-hmm. before he left. And William Branham is basically left with the aftermath of what Davis did, right? Yep. So it looks very much, in my opinion, that this is a period of time in which William Branham attempts to separate himself from Davis, and it isn't over any of the things that his stage persona described no. you know this yeah. was basically him davis is in prison and i see an opportunity i'm going to seize the opportunity and i'm going to take over those same churches because remember he didn't move to other churches he's still at no. milltown and he still has the tabernacle crowd right it, exactly and you know when you when you look at the articles like this one where he's talking about uh, where he's going these are all places that davis has planted churches right right and so Roy, we, Roy Davis had been involved out at the Milltown Baptist Church as well, and William Branham is taking over other churches that Roy Davis had planted while Roy Davis is in jail. And I, I agree with you, John. I think that he's trying to distance himself from Roy Davis in these years. I think that has a lot to do with why he is rewriting this part of his life story so that uh, he's he's doing as much to minimize hit what happened with Roy Davis in these years, yeah. um, in in order to make it look more like it was all him, all William Branham, rather than Roy Davis have has brought this whole thing together and I've inherited it. Yeah, there's a key to understanding the separation here because uh, so remember Davis is in prison. Branham tries to take over. Branham accidentally becomes famous. We'll get into that probably a little bit later, but he accidentally rises to national fame. And at, at that point, he thinks, in, in my opinion, he thinks he d- no longer needs Davis. But after he becomes famous, Davis reels him back in by sending this letter to Gordon Lindsay, which causes... <laughs> It's worthy of a whole nother episode. We'll probably get into this, but it we causes will. William Branham's whole empire to crumble yeah. because Gordon Lindsay is publishing the life stories. He's written books about the life stories and he's telling this, you know, the later version of his life story where he was avoiding the Pentecostals. Roy Davis sends a letter to Lindsay and says, no, no, no. I was the one who baptized William Branham into his first Pentecostal assembly. And while Gordon Lindsay and Joseph Matson Bose are fighting each other. This article comes out that says, no, uh-huh. William Branham is a liar, basically. Yes, that's exactly right. Davis, Davis don't live the rest of his life in jail, and eventually no. he gets out, and eventually he comes back for William Branham. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there <laughs> in time. <laughs> I'm, I'm just chomping at the bits because that is such an interesting story. It is, John. It is. So um, kind of talking about Milltown a little bit, and I, I might just focus on that uh, Milltown just a bit here. Because to me, what happened in Milltown personally, to me, is very important because the stuff around Milltown, John, is what really opened my eyes that William Branham had something was very, very wrong. Because yeah. Like I said, we had the, we had people in our church who were with William Branham through these years. And like I mentioned, cognitive dissonance, he wasn't supposed to have been doing anything these years. Yeah. But but yet the people in our church knew he had. And there, there's certain things that happened in these years that really, um, when I put the pieces together, I realized the depth to which William Branham 
had been deceptive, and it was disturbing to me. Um, so, you know, when Davis went to jail uh, and he took over, William Branham come to take over his churches, one of the churches William Branham took over was the Milltown Baptist Church. Now, we know, I know through the Wright family that Roy Davis had been, so the Wright family, um, the Wright family and the Mosier family are intermarried, and through them, I came to understand that Roy Davis had planted and established the Baptist Church in Milltown, the Milltown Baptist Church. And um, then we know through William Branham's own testimonies that he took over pastorship of it. And here, here is an article. This is, again, this is a year after Roy Davis's went to jail where he's going to Milltown, and he's holding revivals in Milltown. And there's, there's something here that William Branham does is he, he tells a vision that he had back in, in Jeffersonville, and he says, I have this vision, and in this vision there's a sheep caught in a thicket, and the sheep is baaing, right? And the sheep goes, Milltown, Milltown, Milltown. And William Branham says, Milltown? I never heard of Milltown. Where's Milltown at? He says, I had to go ask people, where's Milltown? Where's Milltown? There's a sheep caught in the thicket in Milltown. And finally someone says, well, Milltown is, is out, out yonder, and it's just back the hills there, and you go over to Milltown. I live about 10 miles from Milltown, and that's where Milltown is. Okay, and this was 1941 when this happened. And he went to Milltown, and this is when the healing of Georgia Carter happened, right? 1941. Right. He never heard of Milltown. He has holding revivals in Milltown years before. <laughs> and here's the thing is I knew the people who were with him at those meetings. And back about 30 years ago, our church went around and we made recordings of all the living witnesses of William Branham back then and gave their testimonies. And multiple of them met William Branham for the first time at revival meetings in Milltown years before Georgia Carter was healed. Yeah. Okay? William Branham had been going there all the way back to the days that Roy Davis was still was still preaching in that church. And so that that A demonstrated to me William Branham would make up visions, John. Right. That shocked me to Mike. William Branham faked visions. That Milltown vision was a fake vision that he made up. Shocking, shocking. Um and then that also clued into me that wait a minute, you know, he he has made up. This is the first time I really got a very thing that was very important to me, I realized he made up. Um, and so that that was huge. And all those recordings of, of the people at our church who who were at those meetings, those are still available They're on the internet. Um, I have copies of them here. I'd be glad to give them to you, John, if you wanted them. <laughs> but he, 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 it, he made up that story. And yes. I just couldn't get over that. How... How could, how could he make up a vision, right? Like we always said, he was an exaggerator. But we, at that was the first point I ever realized he's exaggerating these supernatural visions, even. Yeah. Um, it, and that was very disturbing. It reminds me of a conversation that you and I had a few episodes back about the Gnostics and Gnosticism and lies for the sake of a holy end. He thinks he can invent these visions and say that God spoke through him and. God didn't speak is the problem. <clears throat> I remember when I first came across that newspaper article that you held up about Milltown and saw the date. I was like, oh my 
gosh, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. Mm-hmm. Because Milltown is more critical than people think. Yes. W- William Branham mentions that Milltown, I think he uses the word satellite churches or sister churches. Basically, while he's running the Branham Tabernacle, this is his other church. That's what he's saying. And, you know, learning that that church also was planted or came into the Pentecostal sect by Roy Davis. There's another key phrase that William Branham mentions on one of the life stories. And he's talking about, I can't remember the phrase, but he's talking about E. Howard Cadle. He says, that's where I met Cadle. Yes. And at this point in time, I knew about the Indiana clan. I knew that the clan headquarters was at the Cadle Tabernacle in Indianapolis. And E. Howard Cadle, if you look at his history, it looks very much like he just suddenly come into this massive wealth and then all these clan people showed up. There's a lot more to that story, right? So here's William Branham with E. Howard Cadle in Milltown at a date he's not supposed to be there. And then I realize he's covering this up. It's something it's something else. And another point here too is the Georgia Carter healing, okay? Uh, I, the Georgia Carter healing, healing is fairly well known, I think, in among the message, right? Like, I, I, did you all talk about it much in your sect? The Georgia Carter healing. We talked about it, but we okay. glazed over the years. Like okay. in my head, the Georgie Carter story came at a much later date, okay. you know, than than what actually happened. Got it. So for us, for us, these things, the Georgia Carter stuff on up, these featured very prominently in our mythos of William Branham, right? Yeah. Um, and, and again, I think it's because our people were there when these things happened. And so this healing of Georgia Carter happened. In the five-year drought that God's anointing left him and nothing was supposed to be happening, right? During the disobedient years. Okay. So, yes. So, so there you go. So, that that is just one example of, of multiples that, that we could pull out. But that's a fairly well-known one. That happened when the anointing was supposed to have left him and he was supposed to be abandoned by God, right? So, right. So, that, that alone is just a huge conflict in his official biographies. Um. So what what happened there? And again, like I said, I we we knew I know multiple people who were there when these things happened. Um, William Branham came to Milltown. He had a revival there, and I'll say William Branham already knew Georgia Carter years before this healing happened. Right? The he already knew Milltown years before, and the whole vision about a sheep caught in a thicket and he didn't know where it was or who it was is totally false. Right? Yeah. William Branham knew Georgia Carter and he knew Milltown years before the he, this this he went there and she was healed. Now, like so many other things, um, there's actually no witness uh, to the event of Georgia Carter's healing. Okay, so Georgia Carter was not at the revivals that William Branham went to. Um, he he went there. He held revivals, and then afterwards. He goes to George Carter's house. Um, I think another person goes with him, but I believe he is alone in the room when she's healed. And there is no, there's no other witness to that between except William Branham and Georgia Carter. And, of course, Georgia Carter says she was healed, you know, and there's testimony out there. She seems to have got better, you know, after William Branham prayed for her. So you end up with these weird, these very difficult things to untangle. On one hand... We know William Branham absolutely 
misled us and totally made up the the backstory, the vision, the whole thing. But then you got George Carter who says she was actually healed. So you got tr- you got what seems to be a little interesting truth, and then you got what seems to be a really ugly lie <laughs> you know, put together, right? And what do you what do you do with that? You know that that's a difficult thing for me. What do you do with that? Well, even the claim that he doesn't know Milltown, it's not that far from Jeffersonville. It's really yeah. not. And if you look at, you know, not just the fact that he was there before her holding revivals in Milltown, just take a look back at the Indiana history. He's living on Wathens Complex, you know, right there where all of the gambling is happening at the horse track. Um, Jeffersonville was called Little Las Vegas. There were casinos and racing and gambling everywhere, right? Well, to Jeffersonville's play casinos, where you go to have the games and the fun, its counterpart was French Lick, Indiana. And there you had, you know, the healing spas and you had casinos there. And there, there were people that went constantly between the two. And Milltown is on the way that on the way to get to French Lick. So there's no way he did not know Milltown. Exactly, and the the state had actually built a railroad, so there was a railroad that came from Chicago down to Indianapolis, passed through there to French Lick, yeah. and they, they had built that because the pleasure seekers from Chicago would come down to French Lick as a resort town there, and uh, it, it there's no way that William Branham did not know where Milltown was because it, it there's, it's just not possible. Milltown is... is I think even to the present day, the second largest town in this region, right? Like it's right. not uh, – Milltown's not a little small hole-in-the-wall town, and it was even bigger back then. It's faded a lot nowadays, but yeah, Milltown was an important regional uh, center, and so it'd be very unusual that William Branham hadn't heard of it even in the natural sense. But like I said, I know people who were in Milltown with William Branham <laughs> well before Georgia <laughs> Carter was healed. I think I told the story um, – you know, a few episodes ago about a man who had invited William Branham over for Thanksgiving after his family died uh, to help cheer him up. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the the home that they invited him to Thanksgiving dinner in was in Milltown. Yes. Right. So he, he was at Thanksgiving dinner with them in Milltown years before Georgia Carter was healed even. Yeah. So there, there is no chance he did not know uh, what Milltown was. No, there's no chance. And, you know, it's interesting because the version of the life story that he told much later, the one that stuck in the historians' minds, is so far different from what actually happened. They, William Branham often made this statement or this claim, I don't take an offering. I've never taken an offering in my life. And each time he's in a, a meeting and people bring him money, he says, wow, this is the first time I've never taken an offering in my life. And then the next one, he'll say the same thing. We actually have newspaper articles where hefty men, they said two hefty men were required to carry out the money from his revivals. In the main sect, we talked about how William Branham was very poor. He was very, um, he worked for the public service company, which is true, but he didn't have much money. He wasn't taking an offering. He didn't travel much. He was depressed. His wife had just died. The timeline that he gives in this document shows clearly that he did not take any time off when Hope died. It does not appear to have phased him in the slightest. And it was just last night we were t- discussing this article about this crazy wolf story. And, 
you know, we in our sect, we thought, you know, maybe he didn't know Milltown because he didn't travel that much. But there's clear evidence in that Wolf article where he <laughs> is definitely traveling. I, I was reading this article again last night, and there was a, there was one sentence in there, John, that I <laughs> I had somehow overlooked before, and I, I'm still just I'm still in disbelief over this sentence. I'm not sure I believe this sentence still. It's pretty unbelievable. It is pretty unbelievable. But but you're right. In in one sense, you know, people tell us William Branham was very sad and stuff over the loss of his wife, and and no doubt he was. But it did not seem to slow him down in the least from from traveling, from holding revivals, um, from going on his hunting trips. And, and yeah. here, yeah, there's a newspaper article. I, here it is. It's I'm sure much too small here to be read, but I'm sure we can get a better picture up maybe. But it, the title is "Wolf Captured Alive in Den Near Henryville," and basically it goes through here to talk about a wolf that William Branham captured in Henryville. Uh, and then put on display, and and this is. Um, yeah, it looks like the date on it is nineteen forty two. It's August twenty second, nineteen forty two. Nineteen forty two. Okay, and and in in this article, uh, it talks about all the trips that William Branham has been taken recently. He and it says Reverend Branham is the owner of many hunting trophies, including skins of grizzly bears shot in Alaska, Maine, and the Rocky Mountains and pelts off several other wild animals taken on his hunting trips. So it's going through, you know, just cataloging. He's been everywhere. He's been from Alaska to Maine. Rocky, he has been everywhere hunting and getting animal pelts. But there's this sentence here, John, um, that in this, in this article says, he has a live wolf at his <laughs> residence that he captured last year near Butte, Montana. Okay. So the same year that Georgia Carter is healed, he's also went to Butte, Montana, and he's captured a live wolf. Yeah. And he's brought it back to Jeffersonville. And he's kept it. <laughs> and he has kept it for a whole year at his house. Oh, my yeah. goodness. When I, when I first read that, you know, <laughs> your mind goes all kinds of different directions. I'm, at first, I'm thinking, you know, now that we know that some of his criminal past has been covered up, was the live wolf there to scare off people who might try to come <laughs> capture him? But then also seeing that he's, you know, William Branham is very clearly making some really good money during this period of time. Yeah. You think about the hunting trips. For him to go on these hunting trips, he has to mm -hmm. take weeks off of work where he's getting not getting uh -huh. any money. Yeah. And who knows how many other trips that aren't even described in this paper, right? going and then he's having the taxidermy service to stuff these animals or whatnot was William Branham keeping the wolf so he could collect money for visitors who wanted to pay and see the wolf maybe there's just zoo. no way to know yeah a yeah. little zoo in Jeffersonville and, and how I, I just like logistically I, I wonder like how do you do that how, so Montana is over a thousand miles away from Indiana I know how do you uh, I just I, to me it's just a really interesting thing how did he capture this wolf and then bring it a thousand miles back to Indiana? You know, you have to have quite a, you have to have quite a setup to be able to pull something like that off, I would yeah. think. And then I'm sure, uh, you know, a wolf needs lots to eat and everything too. I mean, I'm just really curious, uh, you know, what all had to go in to keep this thing up, and and he's keeping it more or less as a pet in Jeffersonville. It sounds like, <laughs> yeah, that's. It's it's stranger than fiction, man. This is for I Ripley's know. Believe It or Not. Yeah, goodness. 
So, yeah, the same year he's healing George Carter, he's captured a live wolf in Montana and brought it back to Jeffersonville. Yeah, that's not in his biographies. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it does confirm something in his biographies. I, I actually questioned whether or not he was working for the public service, even though we have photographs with him standing there. I thought maybe he's posing or whatnot. But he is apparently working for the public service. And um, I know that you've heard some similar testimonies, but it's from what I understand from people who were, uh, you know, alive with people who knew William Branham. William Branham worked in the public service company with a, another person who was a member of William Souder's cult in Shepherdsville, right. which had the, you know, the School of the Prophets that William Branham himself mentions, the School of the Prophets. And apparently... William Branham went into Souter's cult many times because of this person he worked with. Yeah, and you're, you're, you're right, I, I, and I know for sure, too, he did work with the public service company. We had at our church uh, somebody who actually carpooled with William Branham to work in the 30s. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, he, he had all kinds of wonderful stories he told me about William Branham. Um, and, of course, which completely conflicted with all kinds of stuff. He, he's actually kind of interesting because although he had carpooled with William Branham, he was not going to the tabernacle uh, during the 30s and 40s, early 40s. He was more like uh, just a buddy to William Branham. Yeah. So he wasn't involved in all the religious stuff back then. So I, he you know, he got a lot more of the personal side of his life from him in those years. But, yeah, um, William Branham was working at the public service company. You're right. There was a Souderite at the public service company. And William Branham was being influenced by William Souder's teachings. And mm -hmm. um, like like Roy Davis, uh, like other P places we can place William Branham, it seemed like William Souder was a significant influence on William Branham's ideology, theology, however you want to term it, teachings. And stage persona, right? Souders right. was baptizing in the Ohio River and says, God spoke from the heavens, hear my it, voice or whatever. Yes. And William Branham literally copied that from Souders. It, exactly. Souders had been, uh, Souders had had a voice speak to him on the Ohio River before William Branham came up with his story <laughs> of a voice speaking to him at the Ohio River, right? And there's there's a lot of copies. Uh, Souter was very, um, very anti-denomination, anti-organization. Um, he was, um, he was also, uh, his, he wasn't Trinitarian nor oneness. Uh, Souter's uh, Godhead had two persons in the Godhead, right? Yeah. And he had a Jesus named Baptism. And William Branham, you know, we talk about he preached Trinity, and we talk about he preached oneness, but he also preached Tunis. <laughs> yeah, he also preached dualism. <laughs> yes, he also preached the two as well, and there are sects of the message that, uh, you know, follow the two-person in the Godhead model as well. Yeah. Um, so it it's, uh, yeah, William Branham was definitely significantly influenced by Souders as well, Um I know Bernice Hicks was influenced by Souders too. Yes, uh, and uh, and and she actually connected up with him after uh, William Branham had put her out of the tabernacle. Yeah, uh, for for a period of time. I've actually been in contact with people who have escaped the Souders cult of rank, and um, you know I can't verify what they say because I don't have the document itself. But they say that there were records kept in the cult, and that William Branham was definitely on the record books. And 
at minimum, they said that they knew people who had seen William Branham there and Sister Bernice Hicks, the cult, the other cult leader in Jeffersonville. Right. And I, I think that during the period they were with, William Branham was with Davis, that Davis had an interest in Souter, you know, as a, as a re- possible recruitment ground for his own churches. And I, I think yeah. Davis was around there. And no doubt William Branham was around in the same period. Uh, that those things were going on, because Souter's was Souter was a very prominent Pentecostal group uh, in this area. I think he his, he he was probably the largest Pentecostal group in this region. I would say, uh, based based on what I've read and known, um, and it, it's only natural that William Branham and and their Pentecostal group would have interacted somewhat with with Souter and his group. Yeah, yeah. So so bringing all this back to Milltown for one second, maybe before we move on. Um, we just know for sure that there are things going on in this period of time in William Brown's ministry that definitely conflict with the most prominent official versions of his story, right? Because wh- whatever you read, whether you go to God's Generals, whether you go to Man Sent from God, um, and even his most prominent life stories on tape, these were dead years that nothing happened. But in truth, we know he was actively holding revivals in multiple towns and cities, uh, that that there was healings coming out of them. And and that Georgia Carter healing, one I, I talked about specifically, is a particularly important one because it is the story of that healing that's eventually going to connect William Branham to national fame. Um, this, this story um, reaches the ears of some people in St. Louis who invite William Branham over to preach for them um, in 1945. Um, and and that is then what's going to set off his national fame. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about that probably in the next episode. Uh, but that that's the background. That's what's happening here in these years uh, that, that's bringing Branham up from obscurity, from taking over this um, severely damaged group that Roy Davis has left while he went to jail, uh, to William Branham doing some kind of uh, rebuilding, rebranding, and reinventing himself, uh, which is then going to turn into him rising to national fame. Yeah, and I think that ties back to what I was saying about it looks like he's trying to part ways with Davis. During this period of time, he also marries his second wife, Mita, and it was a brethren minister that married Mita, which is unusual in this type of religion, right? He would choose usually a Pentecostal minister. Um, e. Howard Cadle, who he was working with at Milltown, he mentions working with him, was spreading basically, plant, he was called the Tabernacle Man. He was planting tabernacles that were dedicated to the brethren and you know, also working with the Ku Klux Klan. William Branham, after this rise to fame, after he realizes, wait a minute, I can make money without Davis, that's whenever he rebrands himself, and we see, uh, he mentions in this um, I Was Not Disobedient document, he mentions the healing of Robert Doherty's daughter, which we'll get into in the next episode, but it isn't until Doherty comes to Jeffersonville that we start seeing the first advertisements of the Branham Tabernacle. So he's literally changing his name he's changing his stage persona he's changing his healing commissions uh, name plural, of his church everything. name of his church everything changes it looks like that is the point which he tries to walk away from davis not because of the things that he said in his recordings were the reasons why 
Exactly. He He's making a shot at national fame. He's got to hide and cover up everything that's went on before that don't match this new story that he's invented about his life. Um, and, and it's, uh, it, it, it's, it gets even more interesting from there. (laughs) (laughs) It really does. You know, if you think about it, you kind of feel sorry for him as a entertainer because what, that's what he's doing. He's an entertainer and he's got this monkey on his back, right? He's got this guy that just totally destroyed his reputation in Jeffersonville. Who's in prison for being a sex pervert. Who's got this long trail of criminal history, swindling, scams, you name it, Davis has done it. And he's associated with the Ku Klux Klan, which is losing popularity very, very quickly. That's the monkey that's on his back as he's an entertainer. Yeah, yeah, he's got, he's got skeletons of the worst sort in his closet. And certainly as a preacher, these are all, these are all career killers, right? Yeah. So he's got to, He's got to find a way to scrub out some of this stuff from his backstory uh, if he wants to pursue um, his healing ministry career. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just such a different version of history than what we were told. And, you know, like I said at the beginning of this episode, it's going to be very interesting for historians, but um, for people who were in, who are still being or were indoctrinated by this message cult of personality a lot of this has just been mentally blocked like Mm -hmm. i i don't know how to explain it in a way that people that weren't indoctrinated can understand but there were pieces of this history that i myself knew and then even after i left the cult of personality and i started researching and finding these facts i really just kind of discounted it like i was i was trained i was mentally blocking this from from any history of importance because that's literally what we were trained to do because this version of this stage persona does not match the later version. No. And for me, what interests me about this, this specific area and then kind of where we're coming down to at the end of this podcast is that to me, it kind of answers the question or at least um, gives me a, a direction to look in to understand why William Branham may have felt the need to make such a substantial rewrite of his early ministry. Yeah. Because um, it, it's, it logically flows at this point that he's ashamed of Davis and he's ashamed of what's happened. Um, and he has to do something to, to, to rewrite some of this stuff. And most of everything, if you, if I, if I think about it logically, most of the pieces that he scrubbed and changed at this point, um, are things to downplay the importance of Davis yeah. in his in his life in his backstory. Yeah, Davis was nationally famous. I mean, when you hear William Branham talk about him, you think he's just this no-name pastor in Jeffersonville, but we have a substantial amount of history available on the website of Davis and he was not just nationally famous for the Klan, but he was very big in in the fundamentalist Christian circles and um we'll get into it later but he was the MC at one of the national quartet conventions and he was there with his wife who was posing as his foster daughter in Jeffersonville it's <laughs> it's a fascinating history i don't want to give too much of it here but william branham not only has to hide from davis's criminal past not only hide from davis's ku klux klan past and Knights of the Flaming Sword, other white supremacy past. He also has to literally hide from the fact that 
his doctrine came from Davis. His influencers, like the Souders, likely came from Davis connecting him. Davis was this key element that literally created William Branham, but everybody knows Davis, and now Davis is in prison. So how do you cover this up? Well, you have to reinvent yourself. You have to make a new identity. Mm -hmm. And remember, when he first started touring, we have newspaper articles where he's posing as Henry Branham. He's basically taking a new identity. Yeah, it, it is. It's an unusual thing that that early on in the healing revivals that some of the newspapers do call him Henry Branham, which is his brother's name, and that that's an odd fact uh, that uh, I haven't really heard a, a, a real solid explanation or on why he he would have done that. But he was yeah. definitely seems to have been using an alias at least for a little bit of of the time while he was traveling. Yeah. So much interesting history, and it's got to go to another episode, even though I'd love to talk about it right now. Um, so we've got, you know, we've got some exciting things coming, and I hope that the listeners stay tuned because even if you, um, you know, if you're not familiar with this history, there are key elements of this history that you need to understand to go to the bigger things, which we're just on the cusp of getting to. So. If you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the healing revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We have a great episode coming. 